Morning, church. It's good to see all your faces here this morning. Uh, we are going through 2 Corinthians, and we are nearing the end of this book, which uh, we've been in First and 2 Corinthians for quite some time now, maybe almost a year, maybe a little over a year, maybe, the two books. Um, but it is coming to an end, and Paul is going to wrap up his letters to the church, and not just the church at Corinth, but also the church for all time, because we believe that God's instruction to the church is an instruction for all churches and for all time. And so therefore, we, uh, we take the Word of God very seriously. We apply our lives to it. Uh, we not only just listen to what it says, but we also do what it says, because otherwise we're just fooling ourselves. And so if your Bibles are open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. And Paul is talking about how to deal with false apostles. And one of the ways that he, he deals with false apostles and undermines their attempt to sway church away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, away from the false apostles' desire to be praised by man is, as we looked at last week, he, he likes to sometimes imitate the behavior of fools. So, and if you remember, he doesn't just do this secretly, but rather he announces the fact that, okay, if, if you're attracted to these fools, then I'm going to act like a fool myself so that maybe you'll actually listen to the message you need to hear because right now you're only listening to fools. So perhaps maybe in, in your life, as you think about people in your life, uh, family members, friends, neighbors, if there are people who are attracted to the gospel of fools, then maybe this is a kind of method that you might want to use is to imitate whatever they're attracted to, letting them know that I'm, okay, I, I want you to hear the true gospel message. But since you only listen to this type of preaching or teaching or lecture, then I'm going to just imitate that. So hopefully you'll hear my words of life and truth. And so that's where he's at right now in his conversation with the church at Corinth. And he's talking about boasting specifically, the fact that false apostles like to boast about their credentials, boast about their achievements and their experiences in order to impress the audience that they're speaking to. And so therefore, Paul goes on this whole tangent about, okay, if, if you listen to the boast of fools, then let me boast about what I've done. And he walks through his credentials, which I guarantee you were far greater than these false apostles who were impressing the church. But yet, this wasn't Paul's normal mode of operation. He didn't go around talking about his credentials, showing people the list of things that he did. Rather, he used the merit of the Word of God, and he also used, relied upon the power of God in order to impress upon people. But yet, when it came to situations like this, he could certainly pull that out of his hat, and he had a greater, uh, greater credential than anybody else. And so this is the vein that we're talking on, and Paul is going to kind of continue along on this idea here as he wraps us up this segment. Um, <clears throat> and also, I want to encourage you that as we wrap up this, as we approach Palm Sunday and as we approach Easter, uh, we're going to be wrapping up this book, but we're also going to be breaking for Resurrection Sermon for Easter. And um, I want to just invite you to, to come, to bring your friends and your family, and just enjoy a great time of fellowship and worship for Easter. And shortly after that, we are going to finish 2 Corinthians, and then after that, we're going to do three weeks of biblical sex ed education, uh, because I think it's so important as the church 
that we talk about what the Bible has to say about biblical sexuality, about sexual ethics, and about morals. So uh, we're going to take three weeks to do that. And if you have young and mature uh, youth, I, I think this, these messages would be great for them as well, uh, because it's better to hear these things at a young age than to find out years later after you've already made multiple mistakes and come to a false understanding of how God created us and made us in his image and after his likeness. He made us male and female, and about how he gave us a specific um, organization or boundary about the way that we ought to operate with these bodies that he's given us, toward, especially towards one another. So I'm really looking forward to that, those three uh, sermons. And then after that, we're going to go into the book of Jonah. So that's kind of the, the pathway of the sermons coming up. So let's say a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into the word of God this morning. Father, still our hearts. Help us to know that it is well with our soul. That as your Holy Spirit indwells each and every one of us who believe, we have all that we need. That your grace is truly sufficient for us. That no matter what obstacles we face, what trials are in our life, God, that your grace that you have given to us is all that we need to be sustained and to make it through. Father, because your power is perfected in our weakness. And so we ask God this morning as we study your word that you would impart to us your truth. And we leave here today with the confidence that you are with us, that you love us, that we are capable of rejoicing through whatever trials come our way, and that God, every trial has a purpose that you are working for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. God, help us to just deepen our trust in you this morning. We love you. We thank you for your word. Please speak to us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So again, Paul continues this boasting, and again, he announced that he was going to imitate the foolish behavior of the false apostles or the so-called super-apostles. And the boasting of, this, of these false apostles was glamorous because they would often talk about these visions that God would give them, that they were unique, that they were special, that they were super apostles, and that God had given them a unique vision that they should listen to. And if any of you have been Christians for long enough and you have mingled in Christian circles or even just spiritual circles in general, you know that there's always a few people who emerge 
who like to present themselves as that unique and special individual whom God alone speaks to. In fact, down in Waco, Texas, there was a guy named David Koresh who uh, believed that he, God not only spoke to him, but that he, in fact, was the second coming of Christ. And you all know what happened in Waco, Texas. But you see this in cults. You see this in different gatherings and groups. But you even see this in the common church in subtle kind of ways where people will come and present themselves as somebody who God has given a unique vision. And if you don't listen to them, then you are not listening to God. And so this was happening back in the first century, and it happens even here still today. So Paul, so Paul of course, he, again, imitating the behavior of fools, he boasts of a vision. Now, we know that God has spoken to his people through visions and through revelations. In fact, that's how we got the word of God to begin with, that God carried along people by his spirit, and he spoke his very words, which they recorded, which we now have in our possession as the Bible or as scripture. So we know that God does speak to individuals this way throughout history, and we believe that God continues in a similar way to speak to each and every one of us individually, but also corporately as a church, that God's spirit is alive and well, and that he is speaking and moving and breathing through us as his people. But of course, the difference between then and now is that God was establishing his special revelation for people to know about salvation and how to live righteously, because God is not a deist God. He does not just create and then wind us up and let us go and just say, huh, that's interesting. That's interesting they did that. Oh, okay, this is fun to watch. No, God is a God who is a personal God. He created us in his image and after his likeness, and he wants to have a relationship with us. And so therefore, he has given us his word, his special revelation, which shares to us his heart and his mind. And so God has given us his word, and we know according to his word that there are no more revelations until Christ returns. We believe that the canon of Scripture, the standard of Scripture, the books that we have in the Bible, that the canon is now closed, that there's no further new revelations that we are to receive in terms of Scripture revelations. But we do know that God does still speak to his people. God is not silent, though he does, for periods of time, go silent. There's this period between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist in the desert, which we refer to as the silent period. And this is a period where God did not speak to his people, where he remained silent. And if you look at the historical record through uh, some of the apocryphal uh, letters, or excuse me, through, um, uh, through like the Maccabees, we see that they were struggling. There were people who were struggling, who were being taken captive, and they were longing to hear the voice of God, but God had gone silent. There were no more prophets, no more people speaking God's word. But then all of a sudden, there came one crying in the desert, make way for the Lord. And so there are times throughout history and redemptive history where God will be silent and he won't speak. But then he has given his people his Holy Spirit which he says that he communicates to us through his Holy Spirit. And if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you as a counselor, as a guide, as one who reminds you 
of what Jesus Christ said and what the Word of God says. And so we do have communication with God on a very personal level, but also as we gather together, God also speaks to us collectively. And so God will give us revelation. He will give us visions, but he will not give us revelations or visions that contradict his word. And, and that's why the word of God is our plumb line. Because as God speaks to us, sometimes we can think, well, that's a very subjective type of vision. How am I supposed to, to know if that's really a vision from God or that's just something you made up? Or maybe you just had a, some strange dream and it's not from God at all. How are we supposed to determine as a church if this is truly a vision from God, either for you personally or for the church collectively? Well, that's why we have God's special revelation, because it is a plumb line for truth. And if somebody comes to you claiming that I am the Christ, I am he, follow me out to Waco, then you know that the very word of God says, don't follow people out into the desert who say that, lest you be a fool. And so, as we pray for God's will in our life and we ask him to lead us individually and corporately, God does give us direction. He, give, he gives us dreams. He gives us revelations for our life. Consider, if you will, Acts 2.27, which is quoting Joel 2.28. says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And also Acts 16, 9 through 10, we see a practical example where a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into, into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So when it comes to doing gospel work or ministry, we, we must rely on prayer to God, and we must rely on him to guide us through his leading, through his visions, through his dreams, through his revelation. Because we can come here and we can exercise uh, the practices of the church. We can sing songs of praise like we just did. We can do the public proclamation of the word of God. We can be together in fellowship throughout the week. But unless we're given some kind of direction from God, we're just kind of stagnant. We're just sitting here just repeating things over and over again. But, but God has called us to go to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of the nation. But the question is, where do we go? I mean, Abraham, he was given a, a very clear directive where he was to go, to the land that God would show him. And there, there's often times where, where we wonder, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to minister? You know, this is something my wife and I talk about a lot when it comes to ministry. Uh, her and I have been here ministering together in Clayton for almost 20 years now. Question is, is, is this where we're supposed to stay for all time until I breathe my last breath? Or does God want us to go somewhere else? We always have to have this kind of an attitude when we approach God in prayer. God, what do you want for me today? And as a leadership team, we talked about this where if somebody volunteers to be the VBS director... That does not mean that they're the VBS director for all time. And so therefore, each year, we should meet together with the VBS director or whoever else are the heads of ministry, and we should say, what is God calling you to do this year? Is God leading you somewhere else? 
And if, if their answer is, yes, I believe God is leading me out of this position and into this other position, then we need to surround that and support that and encourage that if it truly is God's leading. And so therefore, we rely on God to guide us and to give us vision of what we're supposed to do. I think this is true in more than just ministry work. I think this is true in, in your entire life. Where you're going to live, where you're going to work, you know, how you're going to raise your children, relationships that you're going to have, relationships that you're going to break up. What are you going to do? Well, God will guide us by his word and by his Holy Spirit. And on these two things we rely some might say that because Acts is a historical book, which is, means it's not directly prescriptional or instructional in all things, that we should not expect visions to continue throughout our church life. But I see this throughout Scripture, and I've seen this through experience, that God does indeed continue to guide His church by His Holy Spirit. So, with that said, Paul brings up this example of a man who is caught up into paradise and given a vision or revelation from God. He says this man was caught up to a third heaven, or he calls it later paradise, where he heard things from God, instructions from God that cannot be muttered on earth. And if you ever read the book of Revelation, you know that there's certain things, like there's a scroll that nobody knows what's written on it, and it can only be opened at this specific time, and nobody can know what it says. So this is kind of the same idea is that he was taken up to this, this heavenly place, this heavenly dwelling of God, to where he was given a vision or a word, but it was something that he could not communicate back to the people, at least for a period of time. And so automatically you think, well, he doesn't identify who this person is, so the question is, who is this man? Scholars argue about who Paul is referring to here, but there's two popular theories, and one that I think is more likely Number one, and the most likely, Paul is referring to himself in the third person. He's telling a story about his own experience, though he's not identifying himself as the person having the experience. And this fits with the entire context of him explaining how it's good as believers to not boast about our own experiences. So here he's perhaps boasting about this vision, this revelation that God had given him, only from a third person so that he does not get the attention and the glory as, oh, look at this special guy getting these special revelations. But rather, the fact of the matter is he's talking about the boasting of a vision in general. And if this is true, I think it sets a clear precedent for the church. If Paul is indeed talking about himself from a third person, I think it's important that when we talk about our experiences, un unless it's a way that you can talk about it without bringing yourself glory, that perhaps maybe you should talk about it in the third person. You know, maybe you just say like, I knew a guy who did this thing and here's how God worked in his life rather than back when I was in ministry, I did this, that, and the other thing and I was very successful. And the, the way I was successful is that I committed myself to prayer. No, rather instead you could say, you know, I knew this guy who loved the Lord and he wanted to serve the Lord, and he wanted to make a big impact. So he dedicated himself to prayer, and God just built up his ministry. Notice the difference? Because when you talk about yourself from the first person, and especially if success is involved, then it comes across as you're, you're boasting about yourself. 
And it's going to have a couple negative effects. First of all, there's going to be some people who are like, look at this guy boasting about himself. Or it's going to create, oh, look at this guy. Let's worship him. So it's either going to create one of those two results. And so therefore, there is a good time and a place for you to speak in the third person. And on this, we need to rely on wisdom because it's not a bad thing to share with your fellow believers successes, uh, victories, wins. You know, it's a good thing to rejoice together, to mourn together, to rejoice together. You talk about failures, you talk about downtimes, but you also talk about how God has given you victory. So this is not a once and for all, but I think it's important that we are conscious of the way that we speak to other people, especially when we're sharing things such as God gave me a vision. Because we don't want to be elevated to that position of David Koresh where people are worshiping us because ultimately the pride of man feeds off of those things. When people start complimenting you, oh, God just gives you so many visions, it starts to puff you up. You start to get a big head and eventually you get arrogant to the point where you're like, I am the only one God speaks to. Come and listen to the revelations of God from me. And if you need to know where to find me, just look at resident prophet on the sign over my door. Because I'm the only one God speaks to. Danger, and I believe that's perhaps why Paul is, if in fact doing this, that he's referring to himself in the third person. And part of the reason why I think this is true is that near the end of this section, he says, I refrain from boasting about myself so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So he cared more about the content than about who the content was attached to. And so that ought to be our attitude ultimately. Proverbs 27.2 reminds us, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So it's better to tell a story about somebody else and the way God has worked in them, or if you have to use your own example, use it in the third person as if you're talking about somebody else. But it's possible that Paul could be referring to another anonymous person, um, which doesn't make as much sense in this context if Paul is speaking about an anonymous person. But it's still an option. But the, the whole point is, he is trying to say here, don't boast about yourself like these arrogant super apostles were doing because they were bringing all the attention to themselves. And so I think by way of example, Paul is showing us a better way. And also, let's think about the story itself. What is he saying? I know a lot of people get caught up in some of the details that are in this story that he's sharing, but I don't want you to miss the point of what he's trying to share. So don't get caught up too much in this testimony that he's sharing unless you miss the point that Paul is trying to make. Because, of course, our minds wander and we want to imagine the heavenly place that Paul is describing um, in this in-of-body or out-of-body experience that he has or has had. And we wonder, what is the meaning of third heaven? I mean, man, you could go wild with imagining are there different layers and levels of heaven? Like if I do really, really good, am I going to end up in the highest level of heaven? Maybe I will. We wonder why, what he means by the secret things which man cannot utter. And this drives people crazy. Because we are a people who are like, I need to know. I need to know all the secrets and the mysteries. 
and it drives us mad when we aren't given access to the secrets and the mysteries. And this is how cults form. When there's mystery in Scripture, people love to occupy this space. If they're trying to build their own type of private cult, they're like, oh, well, this is a mystery, but I know the secret. I'm the only one. And that's where they get you. They hook you in the mystery. And so it's important for us to be careful about when we approach the mysteries as much as our desire is to know what that mystery is. But the fact is, Paul just does not say. The Bible does not say. So I would encourage you in moments like this, try not to give too much conjecture. Um, But just look at the point of the story. What is the point of this story? What is the point of the mystery? But we can look at, he very specifically says, like he was taken up to this third heaven. What does that mean? Well, the Mormons teach that there are three levels of heaven, the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. And they likely spun off of this verse and also 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 41. And the doctrine that they believe or that they teach about heaven is that your behavior in life determines which level you are assigned to. And if you are a really good Mormon, if you live according to the covenants and doctrines and the pearl of great price and the book of Mormon and the Bible, if you live according to all those different resources, then you will attain the highest level of heaven, which means that you have the possibility of becoming a God yourself, equal to Yahweh, or as they would call Elohim, You could be like Elohim, a god of your own solar system where you can have spirit babies and you can govern over those spirit babies on a different planet in some place. That is what Mormons teach and that's what they believe based loosely off of these verses and Joseph Smith's imagination. (laughs) I didn't expect that to be funny, but okay. But then also they believe that the second level of heaven, if you're not quite a good enough Mormon, and you go to the second level of heaven, that you have the possibility of becoming an angel under the authority of one of these super gods from a different planet. But if you're a Jack Mormon, if you're not that good, then you'll end up in the third level of heaven, which is still paradise, but you have really no governing authority anywhere at all. And so you can see how people can take some of these mysteries or some of these types of things that don't give a full explanation and you can run with it with your imagination and create an entire religious belief system based off of these passages. And so that's why I say it's very important for us not to have conjecture. But Paul indeed did say this. So what did he mean by a third heaven? Well, when we look throughout the Bible, The Bible uses the term heaven, both in the the Hebrew and the Greek. That's our English translation is heaven. But they use this word to explain earth's atmosphere. So when you're looking up into the heavens and you see the places where the birds are flying, that's considered to be a heavenly place. When uh, you consider the stars and the dwelling places of the stars, that's also a heaven. That would be like the second heaven. But then there's the ultimate, the spiritual heaven, the place where we long to be, the place where we'll be when we die. And this is God's abode. This is God's dwelling place. And there is only one God. You cannot become a God yourself by good behavior. 
There is one God for all eternity, for all time. There's one creator, there's one maker, there's one unmoved mover, and his name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Holy Spirit. God is one. But if we believe in his only begotten son, then we will be saved. We will all be with him in the same level of heaven. There's one level of heaven, God's dwelling place. And uh, we see a similar vision when we look at the book of Revelation. The apostle John, he received a similar vision that Paul is describing here. And he was able to explain much of it to us and he wrote, wrote it down. And God took him up to this place, to this dwelling place of God where he, he saw visions of what heaven looks like. And so, really, that's the best that we can know about what Paul is trying to describe. But the biggest point of this is that visionaries are vulnerable to conceit. So perhaps maybe God is speaking to you in a very powerful way. Maybe God has given you a very powerful dream that you believe you need to share with the church or that you need to share with somebody in your life. And if that's the case, I think the point that Paul is making is don't become a fool, don't become like a super apostle, and allow these visions to, to build you up to the point of conceit and arrogance. But tread lightly. Don't be so quick to, to spurt out your vision to everybody and be careful about the way that you do it. Do not draw so much attention to yourself, but draw attention to the message that God has given you. And no, this is, God's, this is God's message. I don't even care if you know who God gave it through. So I'll just use the third person. So that's the whole point of Paul sharing this. It's not so that we can spend hours and hours and hours trying to dissect what does the third heaven mean and what must have been these messages that he received. Guess what? You're not supposed to know the message. You're not supposed to know the message. If that drives you crazy, deal with it. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to know. And it's okay to say we don't know. It's okay to say God has not revealed that to us yet. It's okay to say that. And so Paul says, ultimately, he's not going to boast in the visions he's gotten. He's going to boast in his weaknesses. Because it's foolish to boast about ourselves. But if we must boast about ourselves, we boast about our weaknesses. Why? Because God works through our weaknesses. That's where his power is most demonstrated. Because the places we're weak, we're not expected to really thrive or succeed. And so if we do thrive or succeed in these areas of weaknesses, who gets the credit? God. Because it should have never happened. It should have never happened because you're, not, you're just not that smart. You're just not that strong. You're not gifted in this certain area. But guess what? If you give yourself to the Lord to do his work, then he can do a mighty work through your weaknesses and he gets all the glory for it. And so in that way, Paul says we boast in our weaknesses. Continuing on to verse 7. <clears throat> Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from be becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul says that as he was receiving these visions from God, as he has been sharing with us, I mean, all, all the things that he wrote is God breathing through him and giving, giving him a vision and a directive to write down for the church for all time. And so as he was receiving these visions, perhaps maybe Paul himself was dealing with the problem of becoming conceited about it, becoming arrogant about the fact that God was using him in a mighty way. In fact, I mean, he had an incredible vision when, when he first met the risen Jesus because he, he just saw a brilliant light and then suddenly he was blinded and Jesus spoke to him and said, I'm going to use you for my purposes. And so Paul talks about how God gave him a thorn in his ministry. Paul was not surprised at the fact that God said no to relieving him from this thorn that God had given him that was in his side. After all, when he encountered Jesus, he was told specifically by Jesus in Acts 9.16, I will show him, talking about Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So even though Christ had caused Paul to be born again, and is using him in a mighty way, is showing him great revelations. Suffering was also a part of Paul's life and ministry. And Paul says that this suffering, this thorn, was all meant to keep him from becoming conceited. Because sometimes when God uses somebody in a great way, it's important that he keeps them level-headed and grounded and humble. And so if God is calling you to do big things, be ready because perhaps big challenges are coming your way. Big irritations, big, big ailments and problems that you have to deal with. So that brings us to what is the thorn? This has been a great debate amongst the church for 2,000 years, and we've often wondered, what is the thorn? He doesn't say. Well, let's go back to what I was talking about in the last section. Perhaps we're not meant to know because he does not say. Now, there might be some clues that, that give us maybe a few options. And for those who just really need to know, what is the thorn? What could it be? We'll go through those. I'll, I will scratch that itch for you just a little bit. But not until you know that you're not meant to know exactly what it is. And I think there's a reason for that, and I'll explain a little bit later. But Paul specifically says that this thorn was a messenger of Satan who was harassing him. Now, is this literal? Or is this figure? Is it a spiritual torment? Or is it a physical person who is tormenting him? Or what, what is it? We also know that it was a challenge that weakened him personally. So whatever this thorn, whatever this challenge was, whatever this torment was, made him weaker. It, it affected him. But these are really the only variables that we know from this immediate context about what the thorn is. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, the best thing to do is to say, well, ultimately, we don't know. But just for fun, here are some popular guesses. First of all, a very popular one is that perhaps this was a chronic illness or poor eyesight. We already looked at how Paul talked about he had a, he had a weak appearance, how he was getting older in age. 
And we do know that he struggled with bad eyesight. There's other places in the Bible that talks about his poor eyesight. For number one, Galatians 4, 13 through 15, he writes to the church at Galatia, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In other words, in the same way that you would have an angel or Christ Jesus. And he says, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So that's a clue that he had poor eyesight. This is the ailment that was bothering him, and that they would have even given them his eyes if they could have. That's how much they loved him and wanted him to be cured of this ailment. And perhaps, if we look at the way that he met the risen Lord, perhaps this was residual damage from when he first encountered Christ. Consider Acts 9, 8 through 9. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And of course, we know the story that that his sight was restored, but was it restored fully? Perhaps he had just bad eyesight the rest of his life. He could see enough, but it wasn't great. And perhaps he dealt with that. So that's the first and most popular answer to what was the thorn, that perhaps it was a chronic illness, a physical ailment, poor eyesight. Uh, the second option is it could be, he could be referring to false apostles, which he had talked about uh, through these last few chapters. And it would be fitting to the context if Paul was just agonizing over having to constantly deal with false teachers and false apostles. As, as we like to say in the ministry business, the biggest problem with ministry is people. I mean, it's the purpose of ministry, but it's also the biggest problem of ministry because there's, God puts you in people's lives to minister, to share the gospel so that they can become born again, but you run across a lot of interesting characters in ministry because some will be born again and some become a torment to your life for a while. And that's the truth. There's some people who just suck the life out of you, who are just constantly badgering you or just refuse to repent and to to change, refuse to give their life to the Lord, but they just keep coming around and coming around, saying the same things, and it just becomes a real huge life suck. And that can be like a thorn in your side sometimes in referring to ministry. And it gets harder and harder to pray for such individuals or to desire for their salvation. This is why the Bible says, do, do not give up doing what's good and right. Because sometimes it makes you want to give up. Especially when you have multiple life suckers in your life. It can be discouraging. And so perhaps Paul is talking about these false apostles who kept coming around and he kept having to deal with the same issue. It's like anybody in electronics... Anybody in software, don't you get sick and tired of troubleshooting issues all the time, especially after a major update? So annoying. So annoying. This is the thorn in every programmer's side or every software engineer's side is that you're constantly dealing with troubleshooting. And you know what? In ministry, there's troubleshooting all the time as well, except the computers you're dealing with are human beings which are much more complex and emotional 
that's difficult to deal with as well. Imagine if they made computers where computers had emotions. That would suck. <laughs> oh, stop hitting my button so hard. You never, you never take me out for dinner. <laughs> Shut up, computer. So perhaps this is what Paul was talking about as his thorn. Um, very recently, there was a movie called The Apostle Paul. In fact, I only know from uh, secondhand experience because Brad keeps telling me about this, but um, they describe the thorn in Paul's side in the movie as the emo emotional turmoil that he had, uh, that he perhaps was given a, um, a tormenting spirit or a psychological uh, stress or, or spirit about the memories of his past, about that was tormenting him with shame, guilt, condemnation, and regret for the way that he persecuted Christians before he became born again. Because I don't know if you know this, but Paul, when he was formerly Saul, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was one who was opposed to the Jesus movement. So as the Jesus movement began to grow, Paul was on the front lines of capturing, of jailing, and sometimes even overseeing the stoning of Christians. He would participate in dragging grown men, fathers, out of their homes and stoning them to death in front of their family while they watched. Now, if you can imagine, you become born again and suddenly you realize the truth and you realize that you were taking these good people of God and you were killing fathers in front of their, their families. I mean, that's got to stick with you for a while. Even though God says, you are forgiven. Your sins are thrown to the bottom of the ocean. They are forgotten by me. There's still some re residual guilt that hangs around. And perhaps some of you have been caught up in a, a sin from years past. And even though you have confessed it to the Lord and you've given it up to Him and you, you know that you're forgiven, it still just eats at you. you know, there, there's a few sins I can think of in my life that, that even though I know I'm forgiven and even though I, I know the people I've sinned against have forgiven me, it still just, it still just sits there. And sometimes in a moment of weakness, you just sit there and you, you just you feel bad about it, even though you know you're forgiven. And so perhaps this was Paul's thorn. So I think the reason why Paul doesn't specifically address what this thorn was is because he wanted to leave it open-ended so that you could apply this to your own life and to your own situation. What is your thorn? Do you have a chronic illness or poor eyesight? Do you have a medical condition that keeps you from, from really being able to do all the things that you want to do or makes it difficult to be in ministry? Are you dealing with difficult people in your life who are just life suckers, who are just constantly badgering you and, and tormenting you? Do you deal with emotional turmoil, guilt from the past perhaps, and it just won't go away? Maybe you've prayed to God over and over again. Maybe you've called upon all the elders that you've ever seen to, to pray over you and to anoint you with oil and to say, God, in Jesus' name, heal this man of his torment. Maybe you've gone through all that. You've been praying for Maybe God is saying no. Paul asked three times for this thorn to be taken away, and God said no. It's for the sake of your humility that it remains because it's important that you stay humble. Maybe God is telling you no if you have a physical ailment that he just will not heal. 
Maybe there's a life sucker in your life and they just won't go away and you're just praying, God, God, just you take care of this because I can't. I can't deal with this difficult relationship. Maybe God is saying no. They remain for the sake of your humility. Perhaps you just can't shed the regret, the shame, the guilt of what you've done in your life. Maybe you've asked God to take that out of, out of your mind, to remove that guilt from you. Maybe he's saying no. Maybe he's saying, I'm going to use you in a big way, but it's crucial that you remain humble. And if I remove this from you, you will not remain humble. You'll become conceited. You need to be reminded who you are. You need to be reminded who I am. I am the I am. I am God. And so I think for reasons such as this, he leaves this open-ended and we're not supposed to know exactly what his thorn was. That's not the whole point of the exercise. The point is, are you ministering to God in a humble way? Are you rejoicing to God despite the thorn in your life? Are you confident in the fact that even in your situation of weakness that he will, he will be powerful in those moments and that at the end of the day, he will be glorified his name will be praised because you were faithful to him even through the difficult stuff. And so what should we do with our weaknesses? Well, I think every hardship, God has a lesson for us to learn. Because we know the Bible says that God is working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. And when we're in a moment where we're struggling with a thorn in our life, we wonder God, how is this working for my good? I just explained to you how it's working, not only for your good, but for the good of other people as well. It's keeping you humble, but it's also a great testimony to the power and the goodness and the graciousness of God to work through our weak moments. And so I would encourage you, church, to get used to embracing difficult things in your life. After all, Jesus said, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. The Christian life is not meant to be an easy life of all rainbows and butterflies where we just congregate together and everything is hunky-dory. No, the Christian life is challenging. It's messy. It's uncertain. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of conflict resolution. There's a lot of troubleshooting. There's all these different things. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of heartache. But if you commit yourself to Jesus Christ, he will make you powerful through your weaknesses. That his power will be demonstrated. His grace will be demonstrated. And you will be able to rejoice. Rejoice in all things. And what does it mean to rejoice? I had this conversation with a, a dear friend this last week. Is rejoicing, is joy the same as happiness? No. No, rejoicing doesn't mean you go around grinning, grinning like an idiot all the time. Hey, brother, how you doing? I'm rejoicing in the Lord today. Hey, that's not what rejoicing means. Because you can still rejoice through tears and heartache. As you are sitting there crying your eyes out because your heart is absolutely broken because you lost a child, you lost your job, you're going through a diff difficult pain, you, you name it. If you are sitting there crying and your heart is broken, you can still rejoice and say, it is well with my soul. 
That is the heart of rejoicing. Rejoicing doesn't mean happiness. Rejoicing means confident in God to carry you through all difficult things. And at the end of the day, if you should lose your life or your livelihood, at the end of the day, he has your soul. That you will be with him in paradise one day. That's the thought. You will be with him in the third heaven, in the place of his dwelling. And that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. That, my friends, is rejoicing. And so I want to encourage you here this morning, whatever thorns you're facing in this life, that you commit them to the Lord Jesus, that you embrace all the trials that come your way, knowing that God is with you. Do you believe that God is with you? Church, do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that he is with us? And do you believe that no matter what trial, that he will carry out his purposes, his will will be accomplished, and that one day we will all be rejoicing together in the heaven that he has promised us? Then let's pray. Father, carry us forth from this place with hearts of rejoicing, that we have heard your gospel message, we have received your truth, your special revelation, that you have brought us to a place of salvation, that we confess and believe that Jesus is Lord and that you have saved our souls. You have caused us to be born again. You have given us a future and a hope. You've given us a place of dwelling called paradise and that we can be with you forever. There'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. And Father, as we continue to live in this fallen world that's full of heartache and pain and tears, God, that you would help us to rejoice through it. That whatever thorn that you say no to removing, that we would embrace it, we would boast in our weaknesses, and that we would await the moments where you come through and do so, so many powerful things. Father, may you be glorified in our lives and may others rejoice on behalf of our weaknesses. We love you. We give you all praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.